I should take a second to warm up and maybe Philip will give me a thumbs up when it's ready. But um, for today's Black History Moment, I wanted to uh, read the poem, Life Doesn't Frighten Me by Maya Angelou. And it was turned into a picture book with paintings by Jean-Michel Basquiat, which is an artist I used to teach when I taught high school. Just, we've heard of Maya Angelou, but I wanted to share a couple of things about her. She stands, stood as this thriving, proud example of a modern American woman. She was born in 1928 in St. Louis, Missouri, and in her early childhood, she experienced many traumas. When she was a young teenager, she moved to San Francisco to live with her mother, and there she supported herself as a cook, a waitress, a singer, and an actress. But in addition to her stage career, she became increasingly involved in civil rights. And from 1959 to 1960, she was the Northern Coordinator in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Southern, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It was there she met a South African freedom fighter and traveled with him to England, Egypt, and Ghana. She stayed in Africa became the first woman editor of the Cairo English Language News Weekly and later a professor at the University of Ghana. She returned to the United States in the late 1960s and continued to fight for human rights, including those of African Americans and women. With eloquence and immediacy, Maya Angelou has described her life in a series of autobiographies. And that started with the acclaimed, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. In them, as in this poem, Life Doesn't Frighten Me, she shares her passion, exuberance, trials, and triumphs, and that all of us can feel her vitality, humor, and faith. Life, she feels, is one's sole possession, and it certainly does not, did not frighten Maya Angelou. Now, less of us may have heard of Jean-Michel Basquiat, so I want to share a little bit about him, too. He was born in 1960 and raised in a middle-class Brooklyn neighborhood in the city of New York. His Haitian father was an accountant, and his Puerto Rican mother was a graphic designer. He drew from the time he was four years old, and he filled notebooks with poetry, short stories, cartoons, drawings, music, and as he grew into his teens, the sights and the sounds of New York City fascinated him, and he rebelled against his family and chose to become an artist. He began that career by drawing and lettering on building walls. It was just graffiti to some people, but art to others. And with a friend, he created the tag name or street name of Samo. And soon, Samo's poetry could be seen throughout lower Manhattan and Brooklyn. Anything and everything found its way into Basquiat's paintings, as you'll see in the pictures. There are words and images. They're from television, movies, parties, politics, jazz, sports, his own collection of books, films, old photographs, rare toys, and other people's work. His paintings are big, and he used paint, oil stick, pastels, and ink to make them. He made collages. He painted, he drew on all different surfaces from doors to window frames and canvases he crudely tied and nailed together. His powerful pictures are humorous and angry and sad. 
the art world quickly discovered Basquiat, and he loved his success and the attention it brought him. He was passionate and generous. He gave away his drawings and paintings. His works show the world as the artist perceived it, crowded, funny, raucous, and scary, and always real. This is the poem, Life Doesn't Frighten Me. Shadows on the wall, noises down the hall. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Bad dogs barking loud. Big ghosts in a cloud. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Mean old mother goose, lions on the loose. They don't frighten me at all. Dragons breathing flame on my counterpane. That doesn't frighten me at all. I go boo, make them shoo. I make fun way they run. I won't cry so they fly. I just smile, they go wild. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Tough guys fight all alone at night. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Panthers in the park, strangers in the dark. No, they don't frighten me at all. That new classroom where boys all pull my hair, kissy little girls with their hair in curls, they don't frighten me at all. Don't show me frogs and snakes and listen for my scream. If I'm afraid at all, it's only in my dreams. I've got a magic charm that I keep up my sleeve. I can walk the ocean floor and never have to breathe. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Not at all, not at all. Life doesn't frighten me at all. Thank you. Will you join me in prayer? Holy God, as we come before you today, we give you thanks for this day, for the rain, for the sunshine, for the fact that we are actually experiencing something of a winter. But Lord, of course, our thoughts do go out across our nation um, to those that are experiencing a much harsher winter, one beyond their dreams. And, and Lord, we pray that you would keep people warm, um, Lord, that they would um, have the things they need, and um, Lord, that, that, um, that in time uh, we know that the snows will melt and spring will come again. But Lord, we give you thanks for this world that we live in, for the way it is ordered and for its rhythms, and we pray that we would find our place in it both as caretaker and as participant. And Lord, we come before you in this moment where we recognize that you often call us. Call us to things. You call us to do things. You call us to be your children and your representatives. 
And Lord, we come very clearly understanding that we know we fall short. We know that we do not always um, rise up to the occasion. We know that we often lose ourselves in the moments. So Lord, for the sins we commit intentionally, for the sins we commit unintentionally, for the sin of the things that we have left undone, Lord, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your grace. And Lord, we ask for your grace in the lives of, of people across the face of the globe. And again, we are, are very aware of many natural disasters that are happening. Um, Lord, in particular, we're thinking of, of Brazil and Argentina and um, Lord, we pray that you would be with them in their hardship and with those that respond to provide care um, in their time of need. Lord, our prayers also go forth for those here in our congregation that um, are in need of a little extra grace and mercy, whether it be for grief, whether it be as they recover from an illness or a condition, um, Lord, whether it be uh, they simply deal with, um, with pain every day. Lord, we pray for those that we know that are dealing with financial hardships, whether it be that they need a job or whether it be that, um, Lord, that it's, it's, there's a, a, they need a place to live or... Lord, for those that are going through changing of their careers or of their jobs, Lord, we offer them up to you in prayer. And lastly, God, we offer up prayers for our own behalf. That little extra dose of strength or courage for that little extra pinch of resolve. Lord, open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts to receive it. And pour out your Holy Spirit on us that it might take root and grow, that our lives would bear fruit for you even as we pray the prayer that you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
While the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he ceased speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I'll let down the nets. And when they had down this, when they had done this, this enclosed a great shoal of fish, and this is their nets were breaking. They beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, and the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedah, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Henceforth you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they had left anything and followed, with, followed him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you all have been keeping pace, and yeah, you can keep coming. It's it's fine, it's fine. Um, if been have, if any of you have been tuning in to God Friend of Me since we started this whole sermon series, and uh, if you're in the process of catching up, or if you've binge watched, or uh, whatever the case may be, um, I want there's an episode that I I'm, want to open up by referring to, and it's the actually the third episode in the season. And um, is, if, I'm going to go back and explain a little bit. So God Friended Me, uh, it's a story about an atheist podcaster who is friended on Facebook by something called The God Account. And The God Account spits out friend suggestions. And Miles is kind of ends up following all these suggestions and ends up realizing that he has been placed in people's lives to do uh, some kind of good work for them and to, to, to help them uncover or get past the stuck point or to heal or to reconnect with someone. And in the third episode, <clears throat> instead of it being a person that Miles is uh, suggested to go and, and seek out and find out what's going on in their life, it's actually a place. It's called, uh, it's a, a taco truck of all things and uh and he thinks that's kind of weird but he and his friend Kara and Rakesh they go down to the taco truck to see what's going to happen and he ends up getting his pocket picked by a little kid and he wants to find his wallet and he wants to know why he the the god account suggested this taco truck and so he hires a detective by the name of Ray the retired police officer. And I'm not going to give away everything in the event that you haven't seen it, but um, 
what ends up happening, um, there is a connection between Ray and this boy that has picked Miles's pocket. And it's, it's an unexpected request of the God account that puts Miles into a place to do good in the lives of these two random people. And I think there are these times that these unexpected requests come to us in the midst of our everyday lives where God calls us to do something in the lives of others and in the world for the sake of God's kingdom. And I think they come to us very much like the request comes in this morning's scripture reading. The scripture reading begins on the lake of and the shore of Lake Gennesaret, which is also known today as the Lake of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee. And it's a large natural uh, water, body of water that's up in the north of Israel. And, um, and we're still at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And, and he's started out, and he has been gaining quite a name for himself in that region there on the southern shore of, of the Sea of Galilee. And he's teaching in the synagogues, uh, in the area around Capernaum. And already, a crowd has gathered around him on one day and tried to prevent him from leaving their village. They were so impressed with the way he was preaching and teaching the word of God and for the healing work that he was doing. They wanted to keep Jesus all for themselves. But Jesus insisted that he had to go and proclaim the good news of God's kingdom throughout the area. And so he's come to the lake shore. And again, it's early morning and the crowds have found him. And they're pressing in because they want to hear him teach the word of God. And Jesus spies two fishing boats there. And one of them belongs to a guy named Simon. And Simon and his partners, James and John, they have come in from a long evening of fishing. And they're in the process of tending their nets and getting ready to go home. And Jesus goes and he gets into one of the boats and he asks its owner, Simon, to put it out a little further from shore, just a little bit. And they go out into that, that shallow water and he sits down in the front of the boat and he begins to teach to the gathered crowd. And when he's finished, he, he turns to Simon and he says, all right, let's put out into the deeper water. When they get out to the deeper water, he says, all right, now throw your nets down. Throw your nets down in the water again. And the encounter strikes me as one is pretty interesting. I mean, Simon is a fisherman. He's a professional fisherman. He's in a business. He's got partners. And I don't know how successful he and his partners were, but, um, but they probably had some pride about what they did. You know, if you've ever known a fisherman, fisherman always takes pride in how good he or she is. And the fish get bigger and bigger. They catch more and more. Right? But they've had this long night. They haven't caught any, any fish. And then there's this rabbi that gets into his boat and says, Hey, throw out your nets. Let's catch some fish. And you can hear the incredulity in Simon's response to Jesus. He says, Master, we have worked all night and we've caught nothing. 
But if you say, okay, we'll let down our nets. And you know the rest of the story. The nets are so full of fish that the nets are stretched to the point of breaking. And James and John have to jump into their boat and, and get on out there and help Simon and Jesus pull in these nets with this huge catch of fish. And Simon Peter is amazed at how many fish they have in the nets. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. But notice, Jesus doesn't go. Jesus doesn't leave. Instead, he says, Don't be afraid. Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. They reached the shore, and according to Luke, the men left everything, and they followed Jesus. And now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and I'm hearing this story, it always created questions in my mind. There's, like, there's some thoughts that come into mind, because this is not an ordinary occurrence. And my first question usually shaped up like this. Why does Simon do what Jesus asks him to do after a long time? night of work you know he's been working all night long and it's like he's had a bad day in the office they they've worked and they haven't caught anything he's tired and surely he just wants to go home and go to bed but this rabbi walks up to him asks him to shove off just a little bit offshore so that he can speak to a throng of people Would you have said yes? I don't know if I would. Why would Peter say yes? And there is an answer to this question. And the answer is actually found in the previous chapter. You see, this is not the first time that Jesus and Simon encounter one another. You see, in the previous chapter, Jesus has been teaching in a synagogue and afterwards, he has gone into Simon's house. And when he gets into Simon's house, Simon's mom is sick. She's in bed with a fever. And what does Jesus do? He goes over and he lays hands on her and he prays. And the fever leaves her so that she can get up and serve them. Oh, great little story. And you see, he's probably come to Simon's house because Simon has heard him teaching in the synagogue, and he's probably invited at home because he's witnessed Jesus' teaching. And he's witnessed Jesus uh, healing a demon-possessed man. Witnessed Jesus healing his mother. He's witnessed Jesus healing all the people that came to their house. And not only that, but Jesus has eaten and slept at his house. And in Middle Eastern hospitality, that makes them family. So when Jesus shows up and makes this unexpected request of Simon, he's willing to do what Jesus asks. He's willing to do it because he's heard and seen what Jesus can do, and Jesus has stayed the night at his house, and he has broken bread at a table with Jesus. And he's willing to listen to Jesus teach. 
He's probably pulling out his popcorn and waiting to see what's going to happen when all of the sick people come forward and Jesus starts to heal them. He's seen it before. So of course he's going to do what Jesus asks him to do. The second question I usually have is usually, so what's the significance of the fish? Why does Jesus turn to Peter and say, let's go and fish out in the deep water? Why is it significant that there are so many fish in the nets? And this answer is a little more complicated. At its most basic level, the catch lets Simon know who Jesus is. He's more than a man who teaches the word of God, more than a man who heals people. This is a man who knows where the fish are. It's like his own personal little fish finder there. This is a man who has messianic qualities, who's able to provide an abundance. This is a rabbi of authority and power. There's also another layer going on here. You see, large bodies of water back in those times were were viewed as being a remnant of the watery chaos in the creation account of Genesis 1. And within the large bodies of water, it was thought that God's order did not reign. That there were still these disorderly forces of chaos at work. But Jesus is able to reach down into that chaos and to gather up fish. Fish which would provide food and income for Simon and his business partners. But it shows that even in the midst of that chaos, Jesus has power to bring a sense of order. And then the last question I would usually have usually was something like this. Why do Simon and James and John Of course, it's Simon Peter by the end of the story. I don't know if you noticed that change in name when it was read. Starts as Simon, and by the end, he's Simon Peter. But why do the men leave everything? Hey, I want you to imagine that you're out working in the yard, and you have someone come and tell you about someone they met who taught with authority and had healed your mother and you'd be amazed, but you would wonder, eh, must it? my friends listen to some crackpot healer, you know? And then all of a sudden that person shows up, and you hear that person teaching, and you see that person do a work of power, and you'd be amazed because what you are experiencing is confirming the witness and testimony of your friend. And if that person would say, hey, come on, follow me. I'm going to another place. You'd probably drop your lopping shears and you'd, uh, you know, maybe wash your face. But you would follow them to see what was going to happen next, right? Well, that's one reason. But there's another reason as well. See, these are struggling fishermen. The boats they use probably belong to a tax collector. There is probably a good amount of their catch, maybe up to half, that they provided to the tax collector so they could use the boat. 
Some of the fish that they caught, they would keep so that their family would have something to eat. The rest would be sold off at the market, and there'd be a little bit of income that would come from it. They were working lower middle class people. They didn't necessarily hold any position of respect or honor within their society. But then this rabbi shows up. This rabbi shows up and invites them to come and follow him. Now these kinds of invitations were celebrated by families as the position of the rabbi was honored and respected within society. But usually these kinds of invitations came to young people. They were usually put forth to those ones that have just graduated from their bar mitzvah. They've been identified as having a proclivity to do this kind of work, and the rabbi would invite them to come and follow and learn how to be a rabbi. And in this story, while the ages of the disciples aren't revealed, it's obvious that the three of them are not young men. They're probably older than most of who would be invited to follow a rabbi. So the disciples see this possibly as their last chance to do something other than fishing. So they are going to jump at it. They're going to jump at this opportunity to follow this rabbi who's teaching with authority and displaying power. That's all about the scripture, but we've got to bring it back to us, right? Put the focus back on us today. You see, I believe that God still shows up and makes these kinds of unexpected requests of us. And I believe that these kinds of calls come to us in the middle of our everyday lives. We go to school, we go to work. We go to church, and as we go out to play. And I believe that over and over we have the opportunity to listen for God's invitation to follow in the way of Christ and to do something for the kingdom of God and the world that we live in. We have opportunities to listen to Christ. We have opportunities to observe God's spirit at work. And we have opportunities to even reach into the chaos of people's lives and to gather them together so that good might happen in their lives. And here's the key, I think, in that the more we follow, the more that we hear and respond to God's requests of us, we're more likely to do it again in the future because we see what happens in people's lives. Remember, sometimes we let the notion that we're not worthy to follow get in the way. Why would God call me? Why? How many times have you heard people say, well, I, I'd, I'd go back to church, but if I walked in through the front doors, a bolt of lightning would hit me, you know? 
So often we disqualify ourselves because we feel that we aren't holy enough, we aren't spiritual enough, we aren't good enough. When Peter encounters that power of God, he is struck by how unworthy. But Christ doesn't say no. He says no, come, follow me, follow me. I believe that God can use any of us, wherever we are, to do God's work and will. When I was growing up, we would gather in youth group, and our youth group was senior high, and it was young adults, and it was college age. I mean, it was this huge mix of people, and we'd be at retreats, and we'd be around in prayer circles, and I'd hear people say things like, I just want to know where God you know, wants me to be so that I can do God's work and God's will. And I think that sometimes we get so caught up in wanting to be in the perfect place, in the perfect space, and in the perfect time, and yet I don't think God cares about any of that. I think God says, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you are available for me to work through. There's a lot to do in our neighborhood. Boy Scouts, one of the things we learn about being a good citizen is about how to, how to do good in the, in the area around us. How to be kind. I'd, I'd start rattling off the uh, Scout Law, but I was thinking about it in my office today, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it, and you guys are going to laugh at me. So, um, but when you think about the Scout Oath and the Scout Law, there is that, that side about being helpful being able to, to come alongside other people and do good. And it's the same for all of us. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? What does it mean to have compassion? What does it mean to have mercy in the world today? This is our call. And it comes to us unexpectedly. Sometimes in places like here. So may you hear the call of God. May you hear that invitation to follow. And when you do, accept it. Don't let it slip away. Because you're going to see good happen. You're going to see something amazing. Let's go. Let's do some fishing. Amen.